This morning, we come to the seventh and final letter to the churches in Asia Minor. The letter to the church at Laodicea. This is a sharp and biting letter. It's the only letter of all seven letters with no commendation at all. And we hear no praise for the church. And we hear of no particular pressure from the pagan cults like we do in the other cities or the empire. We hear of no battles with the Jewish community within or with any false teaching, any heretical movements. None of that. Now we can assume that this church faced some of the same pressures the other churches in the region were facing. But it seems that the wounds of the Laodicean church were largely self-inflicted. In fact, as we shall see, they're largely the product of their own success. And so, in many ways, this church is perhaps the most American of all churches, and perhaps the letter to which we need to give the most heed. So we'll look at it under four headings. They're there in the outline. The address, self-reliance, self-reliance, counsel, and the promise. Address, self-reliance, counsel, and the promise. So we start, we start with the address. Right? The risen Christ is speaking to the church. And he identifies himself by three titles in verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. The first is the Amen. This little word which we use, for example, at the end of prayers, is generally taken to mean something like, so be it. It means we confirm or we verify, we vouch for the truth of what was just said. Jesus uses it himself in the Gospels. Usually in your Bible it's translated Truly, truly, or verily, verily. But the word in question is amen. Jesus, by the way, can say amen before he starts to speak. We have to say it after our speech or someone else speaks. Amen means then for us, what, or when God speaks amen, it means what's about to come is solemn, It's the unadulterated truth of God. So this is an important little word. Um, It's only used as a title, though, twice. It's used as a title in Isaiah 65 of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it's used as a title here of the risen Christ. And so it's another indication that Jesus is divine. And in in the Isaiah text, Isaiah 65, the Lord is twice called in the text, the God of truth. Or in the original language, the God of Amen. So there Isaiah says, he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of Amen. And he who swears an oath in the earth shall swear an oath by the God of Amen. And so this tips us off to something important about this little word. Amen is a covenantal word. It's grounded in this context of swearing oaths and blessing. Remember when Israel swore to the terms of the covenant in the Old Testament. 
blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. They swore by using the word amen. You saw that actually this morning in the, in the Old Testament reading from Nehemiah. So amen means not simply I like or I agree with what you said. It's much more like this. It's I so affirm the truthfulness of what is being said that I call down the curses of the covenant on my own head should I violate that truth. And so when Christ calls himself the amen, he is saying I am the living embodiment of the truth. I am the covenant fidelity of God. As such, I keep the covenant you have broken. And the covenant sanctions which should fall on you, fall on my head. I am the Amen. And this is the background that the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says all the promises of God are yea, or yes, and Amen. In Jesus Christ. Paul means something like this. He means in him alone, the covenant is upheld. In him alone, the amen which you utter has integrity. And thus Paul says, through him, we offer our amen to God. We can only say amen in and with and through Jesus Christ, who alone is the amen who is our pure and our undefiled answer, our amen to God the Father. So, this is one of the grandest titles you could possibly ascribe to the risen Christ. And and this is simply another way of saying, and this is the second title, that he's the faithful and true witness, which is really his chief title in the book of Revelation. That's... When Jesus is called the faithful and true witness, it's an expansion on what amen means. So, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. We've talked about this a good bit. But there are two things to keep in mind about this. He bears witness from God to man faithfully. Right? He, not, he speaks from God to us. But as the amen, he bears faithful witness back from man to God on our behalf. He's the faithful and true witness in both directions. And so the third title in verse 14 here is the beginning of God's creation. The NIV says the ruler, but it's almost certainly the beginning. And it refers to Jesus' resurrection as the beginning of the new creation. It's interesting. Back in Isaiah... Isaiah 65, where God calls himself the God of Amen. The context is that he is going to bring forth a new creation. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says Jesus is the beginning. Same word used here, the beginning of God's creation. The firstborn from the dead. So why are these two titles so important for this church? Well, because this is a church against which the Amen is about to bear some dreadful and solemn witness. And it's a church for which the remedy is going to require resurrection from the dead in the power of the one who is the beginning of God's creation. And so that's why Jesus identifies himself this way. 
It's a fairly desperate situation at Laodicea. So the second point is self-reliance. Verse 15 and 16, pretty, pretty well-known verses, pretty famous verses, even if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation. Often people have heard these verses. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, that is neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, the point here is not that Jesus prefers coldness, you know, indifference or rejection to lukewarmness. That's not what he's saying. The the historical situation in Laodicea actually sheds a lot of light on these words, this rebuke from the risen Christ. The city of Laodicea was in what you might call a tri-city area, three cities. Laodicea was located right near Colossae, where the letter to the Colossians was written, and Hierapolis. And the city, Laodicea, has lots of advantages. It was apparently settled because it was on a trading route, a prominent trade route. But one thing the city didn't have was good drinking water. So, now, nearby Colossae had very cold, refreshing, and drinkable water. Hierapolis was known for medicinal hot springs. But Laodicea, they had to pipe their water in by by an aqueduct system from six or eight miles away. And that system, by the way, is actually visible today as the result of archaeological digs in, in and around the city. And it turns out that the water they ended up with was full of mineral deposits. It tasted awful. It was neither hot nor cold. Not hot like Hierapolis's water, not cold like Colossae's water. It was lukewarm, disgusting tasting water. It was known to induce vomiting. So Christ's point here is plain, and it's full of local color. You are to me, he says to the church of Laodicea, what your drinking water is to you. Your Christian witness is neither cold, and by cold he means cool and refreshing. Nor is it hot, warm, and health-giving. You're neither refreshing or warming. You're tepid, he says to the church. You're nondescript. You're tasteless. You're innocuous. It's quite a harsh thing in many ways for the risen Lord to say to the church, But we'll see later, he does this out of love for this church. Their Christianity, he says, lacks bite. It lacks edges. It lacks any bracing qualities whatsoever. It's just a sort of meandering, middle of the road, kind of lukewarm kind of thing. Jesus says his word is like a sharp, two-edged sword. Right? For the Laodiceans, their word is like a Nerf ball. Just bounces off of stuff. Don't worry, it won't hurt anything. And so Jesus expresses here his intense distaste, his revulsion, his loathing for this type of inoffensive, saltless Christian faith. 
It's something that he says, that the text says, that will cause him to spit them out of his mouth. There are, there's probably no place in the New Testament where Jesus quite addresses a church like this. In short, he says to them, your casual mediocrity is making me sick. I will do to you what you regularly do with your drinking water. I'll spit you out. And that's why many scholars think this church is the one which is perhaps the most relevant to the American situation. To not see its relevance, I think, would mean that perhaps our lukewarmness has become pathological. We may not be persecuted. It doesn't seem like they were persecuted. We may not be bowing down to pagan cultic idols. It's not clear that they were. We may even resist the lure of the American empire. But we are, by sheer distraction and amusement alone, plagued by a kind of lukewarmness in the American churches. We're spread thin We're averse to silence. We lead disintegrated lives. Our eyes are blinded by pseudo-techno wonders. Our ears are filled with a never-ending river of nonsense. And the net result is a kind of lukewarmness, which isn't recognized as lukewarmness because we're lukewarm men made out of lukewarm water in an ocean of lukewarmness trying to get out with a ladder of lukewarmness. Who even recognizes the lukewarmness anymore? This is just what American Christianity is. It's a Nerf ball. And so the Amen, that's why this word is so important at the beginning of the text. The Amen, his narration, his witness gets muted by churches like this. It gets smothered. In our case, it generally gets diluted by a cacophony of other witnesses. So the text is not a call to fanaticism, to be sure, but it is a text that calls us to be refreshingly cool, cold, and warm, and health-giving. And that means it calls us back to wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. calls us back to his cause. And that means the text is going to cause some regular and some ruthless self-examination. That's what Christ is doing here. He's evaluating. He continues to probe the cause of the lukewarmness in verse 17. Verse 17, you say, notice here, it's you say. This is their own self-evaluation. And you know what they think? They think things are going swimmingly. Fantastic. If any of you have been in management positions in the in the. In the corporate world, which I was for a while, you know that people have this incredible ability to overrate themselves. (laughs) At IBM, we have this incredibly rigorous process for ranking people. If we have 150 people in, in the organization, we rank them. From October, November, December, we talk to their peers, their co-workers, their technical leads, everyone who has it. We know what they've done we can compare it against people of the same pay, grade, and rank. And we, we argue about this for hours and hours and hours. We have HR look at it. We have legal look at it. Make sure that we've offended nobody. We get these rankings. And then you call the person in January. And you rank. You tell them, here's your evaluation for the past year. 
And you know that in an organization of 150 people, that the person sitting across the desk from you, they rank 143. So you give them a low evaluation, and you realize they think they've been walking on water all year. Right? They're, 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 we're, we're afflicted by this ability to constantly overrate our performance. It's astonishing how bad we are at evaluating ourselves. We're really bad at it. Of course, I would get called in by my bosses and get the same kind of ranking. They did underrate me. (laughs) Um, So anyway, they're they're evaluating. And they think it's good. Here's their self-evaluation. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I need nothing. This is a crucial part of lukewarmness. It's smug. It's self-satisfied. It's complacent. I'm rich. I don't have any needs, really. Everything's great. Laodicea, by the way, is a fabulously wealthy city. It was a banking center. I mentioned last week that um, Philadelphia was devastated by an earthquake a couple decades before this, and they received a great deal of help from the empire to rebuild, and that, that bound the city of Philadelphia to the empire, to Rome, further. Laodicea, on the other hand, they suffered a devastating earthquake in 60 AD, and they refused, out of local pride, any assistance from the empire, and they rebuilt the city with their own money and their own wealth. They're rich, the text says. They've prospered. They need nothing. I mean, these are good, decent, honorable, hardworking people. No government handouts for the people at Laodicea. We'll rebuild the city ourselves. I mean, their riches are obviously a sign of God's blessing. At least that's how the narrative usually goes. Especially when the rich are doing the narrating. And so, like the American church, the the Laodiceans suffer from what one analyst has called, and now we know all about this now, at least if you've been paying attention to the news, you know, what one analyst has called affluenza. I don't know if you've seen this affluenza kid and his fabulous parents, but there's a a tragic story. You can Google it or look it up. But uh, affluenza is defined as follows. It's an array of psychological maladies, such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation, engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. It is an unhappy condition of overload, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. And it's been used now in American courts, successfully, by the way, as a legal defense. His rich kidness is the defense. So the Laodiceans, they're happily afflicted with this. They don't want the antidote. In addition to their their banking industry, Laodicea was a textile center. And it was known for making these beautiful uh, black... Raven woolen products. They also had a medical center, which was known for its ophthalmology. 
And they produced an eye ointment which was famous throughout the world. So they had a lot of accomplishments and a lot to be proud of. But their prosperity had come at an enormous spiritual price. And so Jesus is going to counter their own self-assessment at the end of verse 17. He says, you don't realize that you're wretched and, and pitiful. That's their state in general. They're wretched and pitiful. Again, as I said, people are ironically often in the very worst position to narrate how things are going in their lives. Which is why, in God's mercy, we need the community of the church. We need the community which lives by hearing what the Amen says. We have to let the Amen narrate our condition to us. And the Bible does this for us, right? This is what the scripture does. It says, no, 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 that's not who you are. That's not what you're, yes, 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 you need this. It, it, it says, no, no, this is what you have to do for healing, right? So we have to hear voices that are not coming from inside our own head. And they have to be reliable voices. And God provides the community of the church, the Holy Scripture, and the voice of the Amen in that community to us. Without this kind of outside narration, we're prone to self-delusion. Again, no rigorous corporation lets people evaluate themselves. Hey, just evaluate yourself. Give yourself a raise. Whatever you think you deserve. This is why we have to hear the alien voice, the strange voice, the other voice of Scripture. So this is a community on the very brink of losing its status as a church and wholly unaware of the danger. I guess they can rent the building out for community events later on. And so specifically, Jesus says three things about their condition. He says they're poor, and they're blind, and they're naked. This is his counter-narrative. So first, he counsels them. This is our uh, third point, the counsel that the Lord gives them. He counsels them to buy from him gold, refined by fire so that they might be rich. There's an irony here, right? They're actually rich. Jesus tells them they're actually poor. Then he says, you're actually poor, so now buy some gold. So the point is, you've been good bankers, but you're, you're working on the wrong exchanges. You're trading in the wrong markets. You need the refined, pure gold of a genuine, lively faith in Christ if you're going to be rich indeed. And second... While their, their black textiles might have been a source of pride, Jesus says they need to purchase garments from him. White garments to cover their shame. So again, the contrast is they see themselves as fashionably attired. We're a textile center. And Jesus says, no, you've got the wrong clothes. You're shamefully naked. You need to come and get clothing from me. And third, he says, you need to buy salve, eye salve, to anoint your eyes so you can see. This is a particularly 
all of this letter is this way, but this is particularly a strong dig, right? This is your famous product. You sell ISAV to the whole world. And Jesus says, you know what you need? You guys need some ISAV. And you need to buy it from me. Because you're spiritually blind. And you have this appalling lack of self-knowledge. That's why there's always a confession of sins at the beginning of the liturgy. Because we have an appalling lack of self-knowledge. So here they are. This poor church. They're bankrupt. They're naked. They're blind. They need nothing less than the beginning of God's new creation. The Amen to awaken them. And that, that's the Christ who speaks by His Spirit here. The Spirit which enables us to hear what He says to the churches. So we need to come to Jesus, this text says, for three things. He has to be our wealth, our clothing, our vision. Right? Jesus is your provision, your wealth. He's your covering, your righteousness, but he's also your vision, your guide, your light. And verse 19 makes this call to repentance explicit. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Here's the one great ray of light in this letter. Jesus still loves this church. They have not yet been spit out of his mouth. And that's good news. He doesn't just love churches that are doing well. He loves struggling blind churches. He loves smug churches and rich churches and self-satisfied churches. That's great news. Those whom I love, I reprove. The, the, the letter itself is proof that Jesus loves them. Yes, it's a tough love in this letter. But it is his love. And so he says, be earnest and repent. Now, what does repentance mean here? It simply means be done with lukewarmness. Be done. We have to continually fight against this in life, don't we? We have, we, you have to be done with lukewarmness. You should refresh other people or you should bring warmth and healing to them. But lukewarmness is, you know, lukewarmness. It's in between. Finally, there's a promise to this, this church. Actually, two related promises. One in verse 20 and one in verse 21. Again, verse 20 is also a famous verse, although it's not about evangelism. Because this text is addressed to a Christian church. To a dying church, however, that needs a visitation. A restoration of fellowship with Christ. It says, behold, or here I am, I stand at the door and knock. The background of this is Luke's parable of the master who returning home... And knocking, expects his servants to be awake and alert and open the door so that he can come in and dine with them. That's what Jesus is evoking here. And so what is he saying? He's saying, look, I am coming to this church. I'm knocking at this door. If this church opens itself up to me in repentance, then this church can live. If this church continues to shut me out, then I'm going to vomit this church out. So... Jesus is to be welcomed into the community. Verse 21, the second promise about sharing his, his rule. The one who overcomes, I give the right to sit on my throne, as I also overcame and sat on my father's throne. 
So again, Jesus partakes of his Father's throne and he wants you, he wants you to sit with him on his throne. This is the destiny, Jesus reminds this church, which is drifted. Right? We, we're creatures of drift and lukewarmness by nature. This church has drifted a long way. And Jesus says to them, look, I love you. And I'm speaking these harsh words to you so that you can repent. Right? So that you can forsake the lukewarmness. So that you can, be, you can lay a hold of your destiny. And your destiny is dominion. Glorious dominion with Christ on his throne. Part of the reason we drift is we lose sight of the destination. Don't we? I mean, we lose sight of the destination in the Christian life. It seems so otherworldly and far away and unreal. So Jesus says, no, no, you're going to sit on my throne if you're zealous and repent. Forsake the lukewarmness. Burn with healing fire. Run cold with spiritual refreshment. So if we want the destiny of these conquerors, right, then we have to heed the counsel of the Amen. We have to buy the truth from him. For he's our wealth. We have to be clothed in white garments which come from him because he's our righteousness. And we need eye salve which comes from him so we can see clearly and aright, prophetically, into the future and the steps that God has for us. And we get these things in Holy Scripture, in the sacraments, in the church, in the public worship of God. These are the things which are the marketplace for your soul's restoration. That's part of what he's saying to Laodicea. Trade in the right markets. This is what the Spirit of the risen Christ says to the churches. Let us, through him then, offer up our amen to God. So be it. Amen.